As Rob said, my name is Ryan, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here. Uh, I am not here on any kind of official inspection at all, I promise. Um, that's already happened a number of times. You all passed the inspection. Really, the only inspection was, are you real, and are you as fantastic as Rob says? Okay. They say yes, so we'll take that as a yes. Um, but it's really a joy to be here with you and to continue in this series on 1 Corinthians 15. If you've been with us, you know we've been working our way through this chapter since Easter. If you're brand new with us, uh, we are reading a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth, uh, a Greek city. And, um, and these are Christians in this church who have a lot of questions about a lot of things and are getting a lot of the answers wrong on those questions. And so Paul is like systematically working through all these questions. And he gets to this point uh, in the letter where he says, you're also a little confused on the resurrection, which might be the, really the core of the issue. It might be the reason that you're wonky on a lot of other things. So let's take some time to talk about the reason the resurrection of Jesus matters today, not just on Easter when we get all hyped about, Easter, uh, about the resurrection, but every day. The resurrection matters every day of your life. And so as the pastors were talking about what to preach on after Easter, it seemed like this isn't just a problem that's isolated to this first century church in this place. Most of us have never been, but this is a problem that all of us have to think about why the resurrection of Jesus, which happened over 2,000 years ago, makes any sort of difference in your life today except for like Easter Sunday and then maybe one or two other times during the year. Uh, and so Paul is going to do something in this passage. He's, he's taking a lot of high-minded theology about the resurrection, and he's really connecting it. And especially in this passage, he really starts grounding it in the stuff of life, especially in the passage you just heard read a second ago. So I'm, I'm excited to jump into it with you. Um, one of the things that's going on with the Christians addressed in this letter is um, they're really people you know, like any of us who are very easily enamored with the promises of the world. And if you, you know, if you stop and think about it, the world is always making us promises. Like constantly, the world, the culture is making us promises. Uh, every advertisement, every story, every movie, um, we're going to talk about a couple movies today, um, every, uh, every novel, every song, I mean, everywhere we are bombarded with promises, usually implicit promises, that say something like, if you do this, if you make this choice, if you buy this product, if you commit to this way of life, then you will be fulfilled. Uh, you will be satisfied. All those deep longings that you have, they will finally be met. They will finally be satisfied as long as you do these things. And if you live long enough, you start picking up on some of those promises, implicit promises, and you start learning that the world is really good at making big promises and, they, and then way under-delivering on those promises. And that means that, that most of us, if not all of us, come into this room this morning disappointed with life at some level. Like, I thought if I did this, I'd get this, and I'm not getting this. I'm actually getting a lot less than, than what, was, what was promised to me. Um, I, I don't know if, you, if you've been following the news about Boris Becker but um, Boris Becker is, is an athlete, a, a tennis star I grew up watching. Um, he was 17 when he won his first Wimbledon. Anybody here 17 years old? Just sorry to do this to you, but raise your hand if you're 17. Uh, 18. 
Bob Hooks is raising his hand. That is, that is a false statement. He is not, he is not 18 years old. All right. Um, 17 years old, he wins his first Wimbledon. And then he goes on to win two more and a lot of other tournaments. And he was sort of the darling of the tennis world. If you grew up like me watching him, I mean, he's an amazing athlete. And he went on to make a lot of money. And then he went on to squander a lot of money. And part of the reason he kept a lot of money over all these years is, is tax evasion, which he was convicted of about 20 years ago. And then most recently, another form of fraud that I didn't completely understand. But it, it landed him in prison for two and a half years. He just got convicted to go to prison for two and a half years. But actually, the story about Boris Becker I remember is, I don't know if it was a Sports Illustrated interview, but there was some interview not that long ago, but maybe like 20 years ago, in which he confessed, even at the height of his success, which honestly was like the, 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 the top of his sport, and in many ways, having everything the world says you need to have in order to be a happy person. At the height of that, he was the most depressed. And, and actually suicidal. And, um, and so you hear these stories, and there's lots of other stories we could tell like that. And, and you know, part of us is like, well, that's, that's Boris Becker. Like, if I had all that money, I wouldn't feel that way. I'd be a lot happier. Or if I had all that fame and all that attention, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't squander it. Or if I had that kind of professional success, like, I, uh, you know, I, I think I'd appreciate it a lot more than he did. It's easy for us to say, well, I wouldn't treat it that way, or even, you know, if we're feeling a little self-righteous, to sort of wag our finger and shake our head and say, yeah, you know, uh, the world makes a lot of promises that the world can't keep, so don't go chasing after those promises. But what we don't do is the, the thing we should do as, uh, as fellow broken and fragile human beings and say something and ask this question, um, how am I enamored by the promises of this world? Right? Like, how am I chasing after the things the world promises will fulfill me, but I even know from experience won't, but I'd do it anyway? Because those are compelling promises. Those are big promises. They're almost the size of our longings and desires. And secretly we think, if I just had that, that relationship, if I just had that amount of money or that job or that level of success uh, or that body or, you know, that level of education, then this restlessness inside of me would go away. And the reason we walk into this place disappointed and discouraged often is because we have been enamored by those promises and we have gone chasing after them. And so one option would be to say, well, then life's terrible and I'll never be happy. So that's one way to go. Or become a cynical person, or you can take Christianity up on its offer. And what I want to talk about this morning is this, that it's actually the resurrection that makes promises to you that God keeps. So all those longings and desires for a full life and for freedom from suffering, which all of us want, there's one promise you can bank your life on that will deliver. And it's not just the promise of Christianity as if it's some philosophy that's going to make your, you know, your brain think correctly. It's actually the promise that is presented publicly to us in the resurrection of Jesus. So this morning, I don't want to get our eyes off the resurrected body of Jesus because when we look at Jesus risen from the grave, we actually are given promises 
we're actually given promises that God delivers on. So I want to talk about those this morning because that's what Paul talks about in this passage. I'm going to pray for us and then, uh, and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that uh, in uh, the word we have, um, uh, we have the very place where you reveal yourself to us as the God who keeps his promises and who makes audacious, audacious and big promises to your people. And uh, all of those promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Give us eyes to see that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, just real quick. Speaking of um, disappointment and discouragement, some of you may know Top Gun 2 is coming to a theater near you in just a few weeks. And I say that as someone who honestly, like, this may be the end of the sermon for some of you, but like, I'm just not the biggest Top Gun fan. Sorry, I grew up with it. I'm just not a big Top Gun fan. I mean, uh, Iceman? I mean, come on. Jester? Goose? I mean, we could get together and do something better than than that script. Don't you think? No? This is, I guess you guys really like Top Gun. All right. So um, I will say, though, I'm just going to walk that back a little bit, kind of keep you with me for a second. I do like one line in this movie. A lot, of, a lot of cheesy lines, but I do like the one line when somebody looks at Maverick and says, Maverick, your ego is writing checks, and we want to finish it, that your body can't cash. Oh, it's good. Uh, it's good. That's a good line. And part of the reason that's a good line, your ego is writing checks, your body can't cash, is because in this passage, if you'll forgive me, just to kind of stretch that out a little bit, what we find is that God makes promises that are cashed in the body of Jesus. You're never going to watch Top Gun the same way again, are you? <laughs> if I had my way, you'd never watch it again. Um, but the risen body of Jesus is a promise. And it promises us two things. And I would suggest they are the two things the human heart longs for the most. Fullness of life. Freedom from suffering. Fullness of life. Freedom from suffering. Jesus' body promises us a fullness of life. Uh, Paul gets at this by giving us two analogies that I want to think about. The fullness of life he describes is one in which Jesus is the first fruits. And Jesus is the second Adam. I just want to unpack those for a second with you because Paul really builds his case on these two analogies. First, that Jesus is the first fruits, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So imagine the farmer is walking through the field, the farmer is walking through the orchard, and uh, he sees uh, a tree. And on that tree is the very first fruit of the season. And he plucks that, that apple off the tree and that apple is not only a red and delicious and juicy and crisp snack, it is also a pledge. What is it a pledge of? It's a pledge that there's more coming. God willing, there's, there's the first apple of many. Okay, that's the analogy that, that Paul is using here. Jesus' resurrection is the first of many. It's a pledge that there are many more coming. And he ties this together using the same analogy in verse 23 where he says, but each in his own order, Christ, is, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, at his return, those who belong to Christ. So here's the image that Paul wants us to think about. When we look at Jesus, uh, risen from the grave, we are to say he is the firstfruits. There are more where that came from. And the more where that came from are all those who belong to Jesus. Jesus. 
And when Jesus returns one day, those who belong to Jesus will rise as Jesus has risen. Okay, that's the first analogy. And that should begin to tell us there is a fullness of life that our hearts crave that is answered in the resurrection. There's a fullness of life that cannot be experienced within the walls of this world. But will only be experienced when Jesus comes back to make all things new and, 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 uh, and raises his people to resurrection life to be welcomed into his Father's kingdom. That's analogy number one. Analogy number two, remember what it is? Jesus is the second Adam or the last Adam. Now, um, Rob will get into this next week because Paul goes back to this um, in, the, in the passage we're looking at next week. So I'm not going to get into uh, all the details here. Um, we've already talked about some things we're going to save for next week because this is a wonderful, um, fascinating analogy that Paul uses, not just here, but in places like um, Romans 5 uh, and other places as well. But he uses an analogy between Adam, the first man, and Jesus. And notice he's doing it here. Uh, he tells us in verse 21, uh, the next verse, for as by a man, that is by Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Let's just keep reading because he keeps talking about this in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, notice something here, right? Um, Paul is saying that you and I are either in Adam or in Christ. There's no third option. And that language is really language of like, relationship or representation. So the, uh, the theological idea here is the idea of federal headship, that we have a representative, and that representative is either Adam or Jesus. You are in Adam or you are in Jesus. Well, how do you get in Adam? You're born into it, all of us. We showed up in this world as a son or daughter of Adam. And again, we'll talk about this more next week. But what that means is that we get everything Adam gets and everything Adam lost, we lose. So Adam sins and falls from grace, falls out of relationship with, with the living God, is banished from the garden. And guess what? We went right along with him. As he fell, so we fell. That is the fate of those who are in Adam. But the good news is that you don't have to stay in Adam. By faith, you can rest upon Jesus, and you can be in Jesus. And that means that everything Jesus did, you benefit from. So Adam lost everything for us. Jesus wins everything back. Those who are in Adam die. Those who are in Jesus live. And again, what's being described for us here is a fullness of life. Because what was lost in the garden was not only a relationship with the living God, but everything that goes along with that, which includes the fullness of what it means to be a human being. Jesus restores all of that. Adam is the head of the old humanity, which is doomed to die. Jesus is the head of a new humanity destined to live. So we have here two analogies that help us understand that the resurrection is promising a fullness of life that we do not yet experience. Secondly, the resurrection promises a freedom from suffering. Now, uh, if, if we crave fullness of life, I would say um, we also crave, naturally, freedom from suffering. 
Uh, we spend, I mean, you can just think for a second how much time we spend, how much uh, energy we spend trying to minimize our suffering. And if you've lived for any length of time in this world, you know that you know, a suffering-free life is not available to any of us. It's not on the cafeteria menu. All of us suffer to a greater or lesser extent, but we long for minimizing the suffering of our own lives and the people we love. Some of us are even in vocations in which we are dedicated to minimizing the suffering of others, whether it's in the medical field, uh, whether it's law enforcement, even plumbers minimize our suffering. Amen? Um, And so there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to minimize suffering or minimize the suffering of others, as long as we don't become obsessed with a project that we'll never complete which is to minimize suffering altogether. We live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that is violent. We live in a world, speaking of Adam, that has been unraveled from the inside out by human rebellion against the living God. And so suffering is simply part of what it means to be a human being in this world. And yet, Jesus makes the promise in his resurrected body that there is coming a day when suffering will be no more. That's not wishful thinking, that's resurrection thinking. Okay, that's not practicing positive thinking, that's practicing resurrection. To say, I believe there's a day when death will be no more, when sickness will be no more, when weeping will be no more, when pain will be no more. I believe that that's true. Why do I believe that's true? Because when I look at Jesus' body, I see the renewal of all things starting in human history. How do we get there? We get there, first of all, by understanding that um, the resurrection of Jesus shows us, demonstrates to us that Jesus is the king over every square inch of creation. I just want you to notice the emphasis that Paul makes here, beginning in verse 25. Then comes the end, so now he's still looking to the future, when Jesus returns to set all things right and make all things new. Then comes the end, the end of the age, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And then look at how this emphasis of of comprehensive rule plays out in the rest of the passage. Verse 25, until he places all his enemies under his feet. Verse 27, until all things are subject to him. In other words, the resurrection is an all or nothing promise. It means that Jesus is king over all, not just some, all. Every square inch of creation bows its knee to King Jesus. That's what the resurrection teaches us. In fact, in in, in Romans chapter 8, we don't have time to to look at that, but that would be a great companion passage for this one. Because in Romans chapter 8, Paul, the same Paul who wrote this letter, says this, that it's actually not just us as human beings who are longing for that day when Jesus returns. It's all of creation. And the language there is that all of creation groans inwardly in eager expectation. One person has said, like, imagines it, like all of creation stands on tiptoe. And what are they waiting for? Paul says, the redemption of the sons and daughters of God. The redemption of all things. In other words, Jesus in his resurrection is declaring not just that our souls will one day find some new life, Not just that our bodies will be redeemed and restored, but actually all of creation. It all belongs to Jesus, so he's getting it all back. Adam plunged it into despair and destruction and decay. Jesus says, that's mine. I'm taking all of it back. 
So we have that language in Revelation chapter 21 of God himself saying, behold, I'm making all things new. And that begins in the cells of Jesus. He is the proof and the promise and the pledge and the down payment that Jesus will make good on his promise. So Jesus is the king of every square inch. He's like a, uh, he's like a movie trailer. I told you we get back to the movies. So uh, kids, you know, I got you back for a second anyway. Um, most of us by now have watched the trailer of Doctor Strange 2, okay? What that means is that we, we so we got like a two and a half, three minute glimpse of a coming attraction. So parents, what that means is just prepare yourself now by watching that trailer to have no idea what's happening in the movie, right? And to keep leaning over to your kids and going, I was like, who is that again? Who's that guy? Mom, dad, you know, like watch all the, you know, all, watch all 32 hours of Marvel before you go to Doctor Strange 2. But what is a trailer? What is a trailer? A trailer is like a short but profound, tantalizing, compelling, brief summary of the movie. And God willing, the movie is far better than the preview, but it's related, right? Like hopefully they have something to do with each other, okay? The resurrection of Jesus is like a movie trailer. It's a preview. It gives us a glimpse of the coming attraction, which is the renewal of all things and the redemption of our bodies and the fullness of life we experience and the freedom of suffering that Jesus is bringing to us. And yet, what does Paul say? Even though that's true, even though Jesus is the king of every square inch of creation, what does Paul say? He says, and yet there is still one final holdout. There is still one enemy left. There's still one enemy inside the wire who is wreaking havoc. You notice he says he singles this out. Even though he has this grand vision of the rule and reign of Jesus even now, he says, but the last enemy, this is verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's appreciate the tension that Jesus is putting us in here. I'm sorry, that Paul is putting us in here. He's saying, in the resurrected body of Jesus, you see death has been dealt a fatal blow. Right? So Jesus has done the judo chop, and death is breathing its last. Death, its days are numbered. It has been conquered finally and completely by Jesus. That's what the resurrection, that's what we were singing about three weeks ago, right? Death no longer has the victory. We're going to get to that part. It's at the end of the chapter. But this is true. But it is also true that death still wreaks havoc. It still threatens us. It still taunts us. It still tortures us. Grief is very much part of what it means to be a pilgrim in this world. Absolutely. And death doesn't fight fair. Uh, death uh, uh, isn't uh, interested in your feelings. Death doesn't seem to pay any attention to the resurrection when we're dealing with it face to face, right? And so we're in this tension in which death is on its last legs and yet death still seems to have its way with us. That's what Paul is saying. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And lo and behold, when you read Revelation chapter 21, what do we find out? We find out that on that day when Jesus returns to make all things new, the language there is death shall be no more. And weeping and pain and grief 
will have no place in the renewed kingdom of King Jesus. So, the end of suffering is not just based on us hoping that's true. It's by looking at Jesus and seeing he is the king over all creation, every square inch, even though there is one last enemy that must be destroyed. Jesus has dealt the fatal blow, but there is one day coming when even death will be removed forever. So, we hear all that and we say, sounds like an interesting seminary class you took, Pastor. Thank you. Uh, you know, theology's cool. Theology's helpful. I love to think about these things, but let's just be honest. Like, that seems far off. (laughs) That seems like things that we can talk about and be excited about, but what about now? Like, some of you have to walk back into this school, perhaps, tomorrow. Some of you have a mound of emails waiting for you today. Uh, Some of you know the way in which uh, you have bought into the promises of this world, and so you're chasing that feeling of being alive in ways that you know are not healthy for you, addictions and compulsive behaviors that you know it's not good for you, or you're trying to end suffering by distracting yourself, to use T.S. Eliot's phrase, distracted by distraction by distraction, and that's the way you're dealing with the pain in your heart. And so, like, how does all of the stuff that Jesus promises will happen one day, as good as that is, we can all agree that's good, how does it actually matter today? Paul's very excited you're asking that question because that's where he goes next. Um, You even notice the turn in tone. He goes from talking about theology to to all of a sudden sudden talking about baptizing people for the dead. What's that about? Um, In verse 29, uh, why do people, uh, why are you baptizing people for the dead? Um, Just a couple things on that without jumping down the rabbit hole for the next 45 minutes. Um, uh, This is actually somewhat easy, honestly, because we don't really know what Paul's talking about. There's no other example of this in Scripture. He could be speaking metaphorically. He's probably speaking on face value. There were Corinthians who were doing this. They were baptizing people on behalf of people who had already died as maybe a way of giving them some afterlife insurance or something like that. So we don't really know what Paul's talking about. Uh, Number two, yes, this is why Mormons baptize people for people who have died. It's based on this verse. And no, it's not a good idea to build an entire theology on a verse that's unclear and has no other, um, no other mention in the rest of Scripture. So that would be one reason we don't do it. The other reason we don't do it is because Paul isn't condoning this practice. He's just bringing it up as a negative example. He's saying, why are you doing this if you don't believe the resurrection is true? And where that hits home for us is Paul simply asking us this morning, if you believe the resurrection is true, be consistent. Be consistent. Live as if it's true. Since, so since I'm assuming that you're just not like itching to bap- get baptized for someone who's died, let's just maybe bring this into something that's a little closer to home. Uh, what does it look like to live as if the resurrection is true? Let me give us a couple takeaways. Number one, we need to learn to steward the tension. To steward the tension. Paul is situating us in a time in history that theologians often refer to as the already and the not yet, or the now and the not yet. And and, and what that means is that Jesus has come, he's declared forgiveness for sins, he's declared he's the king of all, but that has not come completely into fruition. Just look around the world and you can realize that, you know, every square inch of creation isn't bowing a knee to King Jesus and and his kingdom of righteousness and grace and mercy. So we're in the already, 
but the not yet. And I would just say, we need to learn to steward that tension and not short-circuit it. One of the ways we short-circuit it is by distracting ourselves. One of the ways we short-circuit it is by trying to make the already the not yet. And so we grip things that are good things that God gives us, food and drink and sex and relationships and work, and, and we try to make those things the ultimate things. And I would just say to you, rather than that, let Paul loosen your kung fu grip on those already things so that you can receive them with gratitude. And then let that, let that desire, let that longing, which just always seems to be there, let that drive you to Jesus. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis calls it um, the desire for the far-off country. And I would just say to you, it is good for us to have that longing and desire because it drives us back to Jesus. To say, everything my heart longs for will never be answered fully within the walls of this world. I long for the day when Jesus returns. And until that day, I'm going to receive the already with gratitude and look to the not yet with hope. Second takeaway. First is to to steward the tension and not short-circuit it. The second is this. To, um, to uh, what was I going to say? Oh, to brave the danger. Paul says here, look, I'm in danger every day. We don't know what danger he's talking about. He uses an example in verse 32. It's hypothetical. If I was fighting off the beasts in the Colosseum, what good is that if Jesus hasn't been raised? In other words, why would I, go, why would I put my life on the line for Jesus if he's dead? Why am I giving my life to Christianity if it's a big hoax? That's part of the question, but the inverse is true as well. If Jesus is raised, then it's worth putting your life on the line. It's worth facing danger and facing it with courage. Why? Because Jesus has removed your greatest fear. He has removed from us the fear of death. Now, I've already said, you know, death hurts. There's grief. There's pain, real pain in this world. And Paul would absolutely agree with that. And he would say, yes, it's it's a dangerous world, and, and, and he's not calling us to be reckless or to be flippant about the things that hurt. But what he's saying is ultimately we have to reckon with the fact that Jesus has actually removed the fear of death. Such that we can say with him, as he says in verse 20, that death for the Christian is like falling asleep. We close our eyes in this world and we awake in the presence of our Heavenly Father. So rather than going through life paralyzed by fear, we can brave the danger that's before us because of the resurrection, because it's true. A couple of weeks ago, I heard Elon Musk, and I don't know if he's talking about the new Twitter or what, but he said uh, he was being interviewed, and the question was, uh, uh, tell us a future you're excited about. So he went on to talk about a future he's excited about. I don't, I don't know what he was talking about most of the time, but... Uh, you know, some, some cool ideas in there, some cool ideas in there, but I would suggest to you even a new Twitter with an edit button is bound to disappoint, okay? <laughs> At some level, it's, it's just not going to get it done. Even the coolest technology in the world isn't going to get it done. Even the technology that people are trying to develop right now to extend our lives into the hundreds and two hundreds, uh, that, that's not going to satisfy the longing in our hearts. But this, what Paul describes here, that's a future you and I can get excited about. One in which there's fullness of life and freedom from suffering. Let me just tell you a quick story before I finish. Um, 
my church in St. Louis, there was a woman there named Laverne. She's with Jesus now. This isn't being recorded anyway, right? It may be. Okay, it's all right. She's with Jesus. She would hate that I'm telling this story. She would hate it, so I'm going to go ahead and tell it. Um, but she would, so she had been there forever. She's a pillar of the church. She taught, like, the old people in the church VBS. I, I don't know how, I don't know how it was. I think she was, like, time traveler or something like that. But she, she would sit in the same seat every single Sunday, smile on her face, but gradually she started getting a little older, and gradually her body started wearing out, and gradually her mind would start fading. I'd call her, and she wouldn't really know who I was, and remind her or whatever, and she, her, her back started, she had serious back pain, but she was too old to get surgery. She was in pain all the time, but she would show up on Sunday, and she would show up on Sunday, and she would show up on Sunday, and we would have the same conversation every Sunday, either before or after the service. I'd go up and I'd say, Laverne, how you doing? And she'd say something like, Ryan, Jesus promises me that my best days are still ahead. And that's true. As a Christian, you can say, no matter what you're going through right now, your best days are always ahead of you. And why is that true? It's true because in his body, Jesus promises a fullness of life that we only taste right now, and the end of suffering that we long for. So Christian, the resurrection is true, and your best days are still ahead of you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for Laverne Ricks. Thank you for this dear saint who taught her pastor lessons about living with faith and suffering. And, uh, Lord, thank you for her wise words to me. And, Lord, thank you even now and even more for these wise words from Paul. They speak to us all these years later. And um, most of all, Lord, we thank you that we have something to talk about, which is the resurrection of Christ and the hope that it gives us. Uh, We pray as Paul, um, as the the Paul here, not the Apostle Paul, but Paul Wollers prayed earlier, um, that we would leave here changed not because of anything I said or anything we did, but Lord Jesus, because you met us by your spirit and, um, and you are the change agent that we need. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do that for your glory and God's people said together, amen. amen.